Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. I mean, maybe we could discuss it on mic. Oh, you hit we, the recording button, though. I did. Oh, uh, you've, you've tried to trick clever. us once again, I am, Jason, Once more, I am, I am in the wings, waiting, staring yeah. at you through a glass pane window before shrieking and stabbing myself, trying to stab well, myself but, to death. But guess what, though? You think you've got one over on me, but I just tapped a button, and now I'm looking at you look at me. Big freak uh, shit. I mean, let's, well, that's, having, that's yeah. Wait, you were, you were right? watching Harry and I have sex, Jason? Right. What, what's going on, man? But, but don't worry. But then I, I was, was watching Jason was watching, yeah. watch uh, have sex with you. Okay, right? well, I was unaware, so I am now uncomfortable, but we can were unaware that the Harry podcast, was watching I guess. me watching you or that I was watching you. Which, which, how I'm many lasers just generally unaware about a whole host of stuff. It's just like, that's like, Time. How does De Palma out De Palma himself that to that extent? It's well, like puts the himself, De Palma scene. Like it's 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 it is him. Like it's his self insert character, right? Yes, it's, it's that moment for that character. It's just Brian De Palma being Brian De Palma. Uh, you know how we do it. We 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 have. I have three different quotes to introduce myself, but this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a movie that played at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find our podcast. It's called Trilove. On Twitter at Trilove Podcast, or uh, at, I guess that's the only place we really are, or you can find the Trilon itself at Trilon.org and at Trilon Cinema across all social media. Go there for tickets, showings, and other cool ways to support the Trilon. Uh, my name is Jason Neffness. I am a professional, and you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Nintendoofus. I'm Harry Mackin, and don't worry, I would never let personal feelings affect my aesthetic <laughs> judgment. And you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Yes, that was the one. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I am the only one who can sing Faust. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at RB. Uh, Sorry if that clipped, I, Jason. I, I, yeah, well, it, it clipped pretty heavily, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I reject that basic premise. I, I think I'm going to find somebody who can do it twice as good as you can. Uh, but. First, maybe we can find out if she can. Uh, our wonderful guest, uh, Kelly Krantz, rejoins us again after, remind me, Arabatos, Wings of Desire. Uh, were those the two so far? Yep. Yeah. Yep, just those. Yeah. So welcome back, so Kelly. Where can people find you? Uh, tell us, you know, the thing. Yeah. Hey, I'm Kelly Krantz. I'm just taking a little break from finishing my cantata. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kranzakaga underscore and Letterboxd at Lucky Haas. I'm so, so happy to join you for this movie. It's one welcome. of my favorites. <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome back. Uh, and I'm going to let Aaron, but without any further ado, I'm going to let Aaron do the, this was part of, sorry, I should say the Scream Queens at the Trilon, right? It was Suspiria and this and maybe a few other movies. Uh, just go to the Trilon. Don't miss another series that, uh, that we talk about because we always wrap it up rather than prepare for them. But this one is called what, Aaron? And why are we talking about it? It's called Phantom of the Paradise. It is a 1974 film directed by Brian De Palma, uh, combining elements of the Phantom of the Opera, the picture of Dorian Gray, and Faust. Uh, De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise nevertheless stands as its own very unique thing. Uh, the movie follows the tragic life of musician Winslow Leach, played by William Finley, uh, who is an incredibly uh, talented songwriter 
whose work is overheard by the uh, devilish, maybe literally so, record producer Swan, played here by Paul Williams, who also uh, created the music for this film and the theme song to the TV show Love Boat. Uh, Swan sends an associate to steal Winslow's music. Uh, and then uh, kind of a lot of stuff happens, but Winslow is framed for drug dealing uh, and then thrown in jail after repeated attempts to kind of follow up with Swan in order to get credit for his music. Uh, after a very wild and wacky escape from jail, um, an attempt at breaking into Swan's record label leaves Winslow disfigured and without working vocal cords due to a very tragic uh, accident involving a record press. Winslow then sneaks into uh, the Paradise, which is a new music venue Swan is planning on opening, uh, and becomes the Phantom, a caped and masked figure, kind of dead set on sabotaging the opening of the venue. Uh, along the way, he meets Phoenix, uh, played by Jessica Harper, uh, a young woman with incredible singing voice who Winslow wants to uh, kind of wants to kind of make her take the lead in performing his music as only she can do it justice. Uh, also notable in the film is Garrett Graham as Beef, Beef, uh, Swan's rock star, kind of artist, kind of pet project uh, who is supposed to perform uh, Winslow's music uh, instead of Phoenix uh, at the opening of the Paradise. Uh, the film was uh, unfortunately a commercial and critical failure on release, despite several uh, kind of award nominations for its music. However, the film has gone on to be regarded as a true cult classic, beloved by many, including our guest for this episode, Kelly, who uh, wrote the article, The Hell of It, my top five favorite songs from Phantom of the Paradise uh, for the Trilons blog, Parasphere. So I guess I'll, I'll pass it off. Um, Kelly, specifically about this film, your love of it, uh, the music, I mean... Um, can you give us a picture of like where this film just fits into your life and like how long you've been like loving this movie and like specifically the kind of the musical aspect of that uh, as well? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much. Um, yeah. So uh, I worked at Schinders. The old heads will probably recognize that one, a collectible shop uh, in the Twin Cities back in the day. And I had so many coworkers who love this movie. And at that point, I'd never heard of it even. I said, Kelly, you're going to love this movie. I'm going to lend it to you. You got to watch it. You're going to love it. And I watched it. And I was very intrigued. I don't think I loved it at that point because it is a really baffling movie uh, in some ways. But, you know, the elements were there. Uh, I've always kind of been a fan of, you know, I like musicals. I love rock operas. All the music I love is, you know, the drama, the vamping. You know, that's what I really like in music. Uh, and so, you know, it kind of, it, it stuck with me and I just started to revisit it every few years. And before long, it's like, you know what, this is, this is one of my favorite movies. And the soundtrack is a big part of that. You know, I'm probably not like, uh, oh, I'm a huge Paul Williams, Williams fan or anything, but uh, there's something about these songs that I just find so charming. They're very corny in some ways, but they have really uh, clever uh, very jaded, cynical lyrics for the most part. Um, and I, I like that uh, several of them are sort of nostalgia parody songs, like sounding like, you know, an old 50s rock band or the or the Beach Boys, stuff like that. Um, you know, there's even a kind of a dark proggy type song. Um, so, yeah, the, the music stuck with me and uh, just kind of became a favorite of mine. And I was so happy to see it for the first time on the big screen for me. Uh, and just noticing so many things. And I'm so excited to hear what you guys think about it. And I will have plenty to say, too. I guess re regarding the music, it is like maybe this is a good spot to start. Maybe not. Uh, a lot of the music is concerned with like 
kind of the changing of uh, musical styles and like generations, right? Um, and, and it is weird because this, this movie kind of starts off uh, with, uh, the, you know, this performance by the Juicy Fruits, which is this kind of 1950s themed kind of uh, uh, nostalgic act. Um, that is like, you know, very shallow and kind of the, the humor there is there. They end up playing, you know, this music based on. No, 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 no. You, like, you, you don't understand the juicy whoa, fruits. Whoa. Uh, they single handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave of the 1970s era. That's, that's you're underselling them significantly. I, I won't hear. I that. am underselling them. But to the, to the point where like there is a lot in this movie that is uh, and it's probably because Paul Williams uh, did the work for the music of this film feels so if not ahead of its time then like right on time right like there's the the scene with the kiss band playing it's like kiss started a year before this right like there were kiss-esque acts before uh but that feels like like it could could have been like felt so dated right but it's like right then the same thing with like the prog stuff you mentioned you know prog like really started in like i, I think of like king crimson in like 69 but like 74 was like right in the swing of it and like i don't know when you factor in like how long it takes to like make a movie and shoot a movie and make the music for a movie it's like really impressive how like for the time this is despite all of the musical influences and styles it's it's like really impressive Harry and I were talking a little bit about it after the movie of just, uh, you know, I feel like this, this was an interesting time in music that there were, you know, like the scene where Swan is auditioning bands and acts to potentially play, you know, you go from a folk rock band, uh, you know, to some, you know, girl, girl group trio that's a little bit like the Supremes or something. Uh, you got almost a novelty act with these kind of like cutesy, ootsy little twin sisters. Uh, and, and I think all of that was kind of a thing at the time, including, you know, Paul Williams, real singer songwriter, um, you know, soft rock too. The whole movie is kind of always teetering on the edge of total and complete madness. Like it's nearly falling apart in a lot of spots. That's exactly why I loved it. I kept comparing it in my brain to like structurally and everything to comparing it, not well, contrasting more than comparing, uh, to Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is obviously a pretty direct comparison you can make. Um, but the difference for me was Rocky Horror Picture Show is like it almost doesn't have real structure. It's all, like really kind of a, a mash of things that just kind of happen in the movie. Like we talk about how he's going to find uh, like he's going to prove life in Rocky after a week. And there's like that impetus. And then suddenly everybody's like they've brought back to life meatloaf. I mean, I'm vaguely remembering my actual core memories of, of watching Rocky Horror Picture Show. But it kind of all ends up as this one big mash of sort of just aesthetic. This movie by contrast has like a distinct three act structure <laughs> actually follows like a story and a narrative is way, I think more interesting and like realized a vision for a movie than Rocky or a picture show. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a plus or a minus for people in their heads, but I, I found that I really enjoyed it. But like the music was a huge part of feeling that like whiplash within a structure, like the whole Faustian thing. We have the, the rise, the complication and the, the, you know, uh, the climax and denouement of the, everything sort of like feels, uh, like we've, like we're, you know, still following a, a, a traditional story structure, but everything within that structure is just exploding with, you know, ideas and create and different sounds. Like there's that scene you were just referencing, Kelly, where, uh, uh, Swan is in the middle of his big round desk shaped like a gold, you know, uh, vinyl, and he just keeps turning and the lights turn on on individual acts singing the same song in different styles. And it's like, that is that is the movie to me is like, we were just changing modes every, once every like, maybe five or six minutes to highlight a different 
thing that that's ha- like a different st- plot moment that's happening in a different completely like i can think of even throwaway moments like the reveal finally coming together for uh for the phantom in the recording room. And like, that's kind of a long scene, but I'm remembering individual shots from it because they're just like, they're fisheye and it's red in the back. And that's like, that's something they didn't do for the rest of the movie was that style for just that, that scene. Uh, it wasn't a throwaway moment. I shouldn't call that, but it was like, they didn't need to make it that aesthetically distinct in order for it to stick in my mind because it's an important plot moment. But at the same time, De Palma was like, I'm assuming De Palma and his set designers and everybody were like, this is, we, why not take the opportunity to make this as wild as possible? You know, just one one inch further and it would have exploded. It would have just become completely silly. But to me, it still has like a real strong narrative through line and like a heart because it manages to like condense every moment into that, I guess. I, I really like talking about this. The sort of pastiche is really important to me in this movie, um, especially it, it formally uh, – fits so well with sort of the themes of this movie, which really gets at the heart of like one of my favorite things about this movie, which is that it's one of the fucking most pessimistic sort of like nihilistic, angry, sarcastic movies I've maybe ever seen. And I really love that. I mean, it's such a movie about an artist being angry at the way that uh, art is produced under capitalism, but also it's like angry at artists for thinking that they're better than that. Um, Nobody gets out alive in this movie, literally or figuratively, right? Like, every everybody is a hypocrite. Everybody is exposed by the end of this movie. Um, I really love that. And I love this idea that, like, he is using the music of the moment and the moments to, like, tap into what I think was like – and, you know, I'm not a music historian, but I feel like by 1974, the sort of, like, scales had fallen from our eyes vis-a-vis the music industry – you know what I mean? It's like, I feel like maybe in the 60s, but like, especially post um, Beatles. And then like, as the New York punk scene was emerging, like it, it was becoming very clear to people that like, oh, music is now a big business. And now that music is a giant business, it it's not, there's no such thing as artistic integrity, right? If they're insofar as there ever was. And so like, that's how this, this opens, right? Is it's taking all of these different music genres and being like, yeah, but guess what? Like, the guy who basically invented these or made them possible, Death Records, right, Swan, he was a totally cynical, just like completely in it for the business. And um, that that sort of like corruptive, corrupting influence touches everything in this movie. And I really love the fact that like they are really like taking every single musical genre to task, taking sort of like the whole history of genre and music to task in order to like tell this story about the quote unquote, the monster who stole it. Right. And like what, what there was to steal in the first place and what it means that it could be stolen. Um, I just think that like, I think that like using the chaos and the sort of anarchy of the pastiche of so many genres to, to make that point um, and to make it in this like, really ostentatious like no holds barred rock opera is is like a really fascinating way to like to to tell a story to tell that story in the most appropriate way maybe that sounds strange to say but it, it feels like this is the kind of message that needed to happen the way that it happened and i really like that about this movie i i love comparing it against like the musical landscape of the day because this was the late i guess mid 
early mid seventies for this movie, but like sort of prescient in the way that it was pulling together. Like, I mean, the earliest independent music you could say happened in the early 1900s, but like functionally when recording apparatus became more affordable, when like uh, the availability of DIY music and like the prominence of it started to really come into its own in the late seventies, like this is sort of what you're saying, Harry is sort of clashing, not clashing, but like jiving with that concept of the like business of music is growing bigger and they're finding ways to profit uh, off of it more. And they're finding ways to, um, uh, you know, leverage and exploit the, the actual work to just drive further corporate profits. Uh, but at the same time, there was like an undercurrent of, um, I, I won't even say like reactionary or counterculture, but like the fact that a lot of independent music was starting to like gain viability on a national on an international stage around this time sort of feels like it. I don't know if this movie is, talking about that directly but it feels like it's sort of like a, a concurrent point a parallel point about um how like there is there was a growing sentiment of like this is not the way to produce you know quote-unquote art whatever and it sounds like what you're saying i don't know if the rest of the group agrees is that this movie is even taking to task the folks who say real art is produced without the backing of capital real art is like doesn't need big money doesn't need big promoters doesn't need etc is that is that sort of where you're going with that point yeah, I think that that it's a more nuanced um, take, right? But I I would just point to how unsympathetic Leech and uh, even Phoenix are ultimately in this movie. The fact that like both of them are are hypocrites, right? Like Winslow Leech has this like very uh, Phantom of the Opera esque unhealthy obsession with Phoenix, but it's not the person, right? It's she's an instrument to him that she's the only person worthy of playing his cantata. And so he puts her on this sort of like purity pedestal, this idea that she's going to be like this pure, like divine, like Madonna uh, object that is going to like make his music um, what it was always supposed to be. And then it turns out that like, she just wanted the fame, right? Like everybody else, like she's just a woman, she's just a person. And so she is immediately corrupted, like hilariously quickly. I think that there's like, one scene where where uh, Swan comes on to her, and then in the next scene, she's like doing coke and like a, a fucking limo, and, and she's like high for the rest of the movie, and just completely like Gonzo. It's so funny, um, but like like so so she doesn't get out alive, right? She's not the pure object that uh, Winslow thought she right. was, and like and she in, and she's- in fact. Like yeah, she sorry. starts the movie by saying, like, I don't want to do it this way. I don't want to do it the, you know, uh, couch interview style. I don't want to, like, get by on all these things that normally would connote, like, success and fame and, like, the, the quick path to, to fame. Right. She wants to, like, she wants to only be known for her art. She wants to know, right. be known for singing. She's, like, she knows that she's the good one kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, in, in the more, the, the sort of, like, less um, nuanced and, and less interesting version of this movie, which is a, a movie that we've all seen a million times, right? Like, Winslow and Phoenix would be unambiguous heroes, right? They would represent the soulful artist who doesn't want to compromise, who, who does want to sort of, like, make it on their skill right like doe-eyed jessica harper right she's so pretty she's so like the like the perfect sort of like leading lady for this and then they just completely pull the rug out from under you when she gets a taste of that fame and meanwhile winslow is like in his pursuit of this artistic purity quote unquote he ends up destroying himself and everybody he loves right yeah i was gonna say you know winslow's the same way uh you know he very early in the movie he corners swan is is about to stab him and swan says wait a minute why don't you and i work together to open the paradise and then you get what you want too and he was just like oh great i'll 
we'll see you at auditions. I'm there. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, sitting there picking out who's going to sing his songs, you know, five minutes after he just, you know, almost slammed a guy through the wall saying, I'm the only one that can sing Faust. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's ready to compromise very quickly. Just like poor Phoenix. That was one of my favorite scenes because it is supposed to be, I mean, I guess if it happened later in the movie, it would be like a very tense confrontation. It would be like the moment of client, like it would, it would end up being way more, and it is pivotal, but it would be, end up being a way more dramatic moment. But literally <laughs> the newly developed phantom, like after this point of view shot of him, like creeping into the building and uh, terrifying people as, as they run away. And then he approaches uh, Swan in his, in his studio at Swanage or whatever. And he says, and he starts to talk and he's just got like this raspy like screech it's all he's got left of his voice and swan's like what is that sound what is that horrible sound can you not talk anymore what is wrong with you (laughs) it's like the funniest like deflation of all dramatic tension in that moment Uh, you know you know i'm sure everybody caught on to this but i find it fascinating and so just darkly humorous that when swan is giving uh winslow his voice as the phantom that it's swan's voice (laughs) he's like putting it through all the the filters and the mm-hmm. dobies and suddenly it's paul williams singing, that's one of my uh, favorite scenes because like right <laughs> so in that good. moment it's like swan is so evil right and he's he's abusing our boy winslow but like when you're watching him like be behind the like behind the levers and like producing for a second you're like damn these guys really got the next heat <laughs> you know what i mean i'm like these two working together fucking unstoppable <laughs> it is pretty good I I do think that there's there is a part of me that wanted to see Winslow, and I think this goes against kind of the the point of the film, which is like Winslow is just as corruptible as everybody else, right? Uh, and he probably would have been okay with being corrupted if Phoenix had actually got to sing, right? Uh, but there is a part of me that kind of wanted to see him just go around sabotaging shit a little bit more, you know? Like I think the point is that he immediately kind of switches over, but just personally, the 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 Phantom of the Opera esque, you know, guy flinging through the rafters, mm-hmm. dropping shit on people. I could have used, a, like, three more scenes of that. You I, know mean, what I mean, just a yeah. little bit. To be fair, that first one is all time. When he hides a time it bomb is. in the car, it blows up all of the, the juicy t- <laughs> the, the time bomb is good. Also, the, the beef's ending, beef getting electrocuted. I mean, that is... I, which, you know, look, we... This this movie is filled with great characters and scenes. Beef, mm-hmm. star Dude, of the show. Oh yeah, number I mean, one. Uh, I mean, I think that like Paul Williams in this is like one of my favorite performances of all beef. time. Maybe, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you're beef. not wrong. It's beef. It's beef. 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 It's what's beef. for dinner. What do you think of they're beef? Bo- Kelly? I mean, they both steal. They steal every scene they're in. <laughs> both of them do. Swan gets all the good lines, and you know, Paul Williams just really sells it with his you know big toothy smile and his you know funny way of. <laughs> saying things uh you know what's uh oh oh, she's too good for you oh well i'll hire her anyways uh and garrett graham is such he's the best character actor i smile every time he turns up in a movie and i know he's gonna steal every scene he's in and beef especially over time has basically grown to be my favorite character really is just Honestly, the the scene that steals the movie is uh, him like singing Jim Morrison style in the shower, and then the Phantom comes up. Just, cuts, <laughs> just all, all he does is cuts the curtain down. I thought he was going to stab him to death to make sure he would never sing, but he just cuts the curtain down and then plunges his mouth. And he's like, "You don't get to sing, Faust. It's only only for Phoenix." Like every time that those scenes happen, I was like, "Oh shit, something's going to go down." And then Dupont was like, "Nah, we're going to put in some poop humor. We're going to put in something like the equivalent of poop humor, not actually much poop humor. Like 
again, just removing all actual tension from that scene in favor of like a really good consist, like thematically, weirdly thematically consistent punchline that always lands. I don't know. It's, it's a complete wonder that it held together, but God. Well, and it's because Winslow constantly has to go up against these guys that are just not buying any of it, right? Well, I mean, to be fair, Beef is terrified of him. Uh, shout outs, by the way, originally what I was going to say is that shower sequence is a very long take at the beginning. And Beef does this thing where he like throws the soap behind his back and catches very it. Good. And I was so impressed by that because I was like, wow, how did he do that? Um but uh, I like my favorite thing about the Swan uh, Winslow dynamic is that like, like Swan is like this Svengali where he's just like it's impossible to get under his collar, right? He's so smooth and he's so slimy, and it's such a perfect sort of like power dynamic between the two of them, where it's like everything about Winslow is like the avenging hero, right? Everything about him should make us want to root for him but like the fact that he is so literally and figuratively cucked by swan is almost like like you said like like comedic we're like i mean i think that the um the apex of that is right at the at the middle of the movie the end of the second act when um swan is making love to uh phoenix kind of um he's just sort of like laying there languidly and letting her like make out with his body um and uh winslow is like staring down the skylight at them go at it in the rain and then swan just sort of like gets this little twinkle in his eye and his hand just reaches over to a button and then there's a monitor and there was a camera looking down at the skylight so that he could watch the phantom watch him cuck him right it's like how did he do it how like how does how is he always a step ahead uh i just i love that he's like impossibly on top of it and then um i think that like i think it's really important to his characterization that he is like totally untouchable because then when he becomes touchable at the end of the movie and pathetic in fact it's such a great role reversal that like even the really cynical message at the end of this movie is kind of almost a consolation weirdly right it's like hey like everybody's toppled by this right like the the guy on top right now is not going to be on top forever because he just wants to be young forever too you know he just doesn't want to die too um i really love that and i just like i think that like you're right jason the the like the um impact of the confrontations in this movie is so much different than it should be and it's because like the movie refuses to sort of let the conventional narrative play out without sort mm. of like playing with it right it, without making it funny or making it weird yeah yeah i mean going back to beef even his introduction as a character is like that like literally he's introduced as beef and then the next thing you see him and he just lets out a shriek after walking out of a box you know like there's no introduction to this character proper you know he he auditions and before he's given that entire i mean when we reference the prog song that everybody's talking are we talking about life at last which he sings that's the one we're talking about yeah because that is uh, that's probably my favorite song in the in the movie uh it just goes it, it rocks incredibly dude. hard uh Kelly, you you wrote about this for obviously Parasphere. Do you want to talk about that song a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so there's this uh, introductory sort of piece by the Undeads. You know, they're walking around the uh, the theater and pretending to chop up people and get all their body parts. And then you know the the deadly nurses are bringing them to the box to create a man. And that's another kind of Rocky Horror parallel, I think. Is this like? you know, Frankenstein-esque creation of uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the perfect man. Um, and I love that it's beef <laughs> and his little red spandex <laughs> outfit and his little sparkly wig. Uh, and he hops out and, yeah, starts singing Life at Last. And, you know, this song, it, it's, it is really 
literalizing what just happened. You know, he's saying, I'm made up of all the parts of you that you hate. You created me. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of like a, I mean, shock rock was kind of the thing at the time. I'm a, you know, I, I know he's got really bad personal politics, but I really like Alice Cooper's music and performances and stuff. And, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and, you know, it's it's very much that kind of shock rock thing, like kind of indicting the whole audience of like, you know what? This is what you like. You created us. I'm a horror and I'm I'm made up of you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like pre Reagan era politics, like we are we are the antithesis, like you, I guess, post man, too many thoughts to post modernism post like 50s and 60s, uh, you know, summer child rock. This is like the counter version. This is exactly like, like the parts of 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 art and performance that you wanted to sort of dis- discard, forget, ignore and di- like not make part of commercial music. That is that is us. That's what that song is like. I love how during that scene, I don't know if there's any like thematic through line there, but that scene more than any other made me feel like the whole musical number of it made me feel like we're here's the clearest disrespect of like logic and reality that the whole movie seems to have because several times, like starting with uh, again, when the, um, the undeads are they're leading in before a beef takes the stage and there's like a woman and you see her hand slowly reach for the crowd and they've got their headstocks have blades on them and slowly just like shot, shot, river shot, shot, river shot. And then her hand just like falls off. And I was like, okay, so I mean, it wouldn't be the most bizarre thing if the people in this movie actually started killing audience members. Like that sounds like a who wants to die for art kind of thing, like a total John Waters cheesiness. But I guess it's revealed eventually that that wasn't really happening. Like that all of these people that are visibly grabbed from the audience, thrown around, cut in half, all this kind of stuff that they were like part of the performance did not get that until the very end. I, as an audience member of the movie, thought that the audience members of this movie or this performance were. You thought there was some sort of satanic ritual going on. Listen, if it it had, if it were. What did it like rock and roll fears of in the 1970s, like parent <laughs> exactly. groups, like they were right. And yeah. there's the tie. I think, I think that's exactly there's, what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. There's a few tells like, uh, the guy, I can't remember if they grabbed the head from him or maybe just part of the torso or something, but there's kind of a dangly puppet guy. Mm. Um, the, or yeah, the torso guy, I guess it's, you know, hysterically fake looking for box <laughs> on him and he's going like, like shrinking down in his seat yeah. while they're smearing the torso. <laughs> but was, I, you know, the, the first few times I was with you, I was like, are they chopping these people up like in the movie? But even, even, tell. That, even later on, I was like, again, it, just the, the stage of the movie had set for my brain to interpret it was like, yeah, maybe the movie just wants me to accept that this per like head with a screw hanging out of the bottom is supposed to be somebody's real head. Maybe that's like, I can I can work with that operating level of this movie since it's built me to that point. I, I well, was and I mean, incredible. it's worth noting also that like 20 minutes later, the, the movie ends with basically the end of the world. The audience members are tearing each other apart and partying in this like bacchanalian way. They have like they they stabbed Swan to death and just like thought it was part of the performance. They're stabbing each other with like big beak masks for fun. Everybody's cheering, right? Like there's not even music playing anymore at that point. It's just like they've fully gone over the edge into this sort of like rock anarchy uh, chaos. Um, I really love uh, Life at Last as like the placement in the movie, right? Because throughout the movie, it's been Swan wants to open his paradise, right? And his paradise is going to be his magnum opus. It's how he's finally going to bring his legacy um, to life permanently, right? It's it's his Rubicon. Um, and uh, 
So he gets the cantata to do that, first of all, which is kind of like supposed to be the same thing, but for Winslow, but then he corrupts it with beef, right? And meanwhile, beef is singing this thing about how it's like, hey, like, you're right. Like, this is the end of history of music, right? It's like, I am all of music. I am all of like uh, the commercial history of music. I like everything that we've been doing has built up to this point, And now it's this. And it is like this terrible perversion of what the artist wanted, right? Or what was supposed to be. Uh, and instead, it's this other thing, right? Um, it's beef instead of Phoenix, instead of Winslow, instead of whatever, right? It's like, it was always going to be this. It was always going to be this like little Frankenstein's monster because that's what we made, right? It's for as weird as this movie is, it has an incredible sense of earned confidence that I don't know if I was ready for. Like probably one watch was not enough for me to really parse everything because I thought we were going in for like a maybe lower budget or more exploitation style thing. It's it really I can't thread the needle on one genre that it sticks to. Um, it's broadly like sci-fi, broadly horror, broadly comedy broadly musical it is i will say that even the nearest comparison and the comparison i can make is rocky horror it's it outpaces that movie by far it's like so much better more entertaining more enjoyable um i guess that's more amusing than it than a specific point but harry oh well and i mean we, we should shout out like 100 well i shouldn't say 100 percent, but a huge part of why that is is because it's de palma right like de palma's like the most audacious fearless batshit director i mean like that juicy fruit scene that i was just talking about earlier where uh the phantom blows up the the entire thing takes place on literally split screen like they literally cut the movie in half so that you can see the performance on one side and you can see leech on the other side like you know like just like carrie and it's like that's the most ridiculous thing to do to a movie because it's like if, (laughs) if the objective of a movie is to sort of like um, get you to suspend your disbelief, get you to sort of like see past the fourth wall and inhabit this world. Like calling attention to craft that way, that ostentatiously is like a cardinal sin to convention, right? But like De Palma was never interested in that. He was always in all of his movies, this is a common through line and especially here, like he wants you to see the mechanisms. He wants you to understand how... Um, how created all of this is, how artificial it all is, how performative it all is. And he wants to use the fact that it is that performative to sort of like get you to reframe and reconsider not only movies, but also just sort of like your lived experience a little bit, right? That's that's the like real postmodernism of De Palma that I um that I really like appreciate so much. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up that scene. I really feel like uh, that one really exemplifies just how much is stuffed into really every scene of this movie. Um, you know, having seen it many, many times, I feel like even in that one, I still notice things, you know, obviously you know, there's the touch of evil homage, which is cool, but it, I, I mean, oh my God, you're seeing the same thing, even from multiple angles at times, you know, you're watching on one side, you know, the car is getting pushed off and then you're, you know, here comes the car in the other shot. And then meanwhile, you know, the kind of hell's angels esque, you know, backstage guys are, you know, harassing the women saying, you get that sweater off. We pay you to see your body. There's stuffing pills in the mouth of some guy. That's like, ah, the vibes are off. It's weird. He's like, shut up, get up, get back up there. Here's some speed. Get out of here. Uh, I mean, you're seeing the performers just kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of, it's a, it's a practice. So they're, they're still kind of learning what they're supposed to do. They're, they're looking at each other being like, Oh, what's up? You know, they're kind of, you know, they just they seem like they're they're not on their game yet, but it is just fascinating to watch 
everything about the scene and that there's 10 things going on at the exact same time. And it is stunning. Like, I'm glad you both brought up the the the, the form of that scene and how the, it splits the, because obviously we've all seen De Palma movies here. He, he does that a lot. I wasn't ready for, in a movie from 1974, for him to do that. I think like in double in like a sort of commentary way in that same scene I was talking about earlier where um, the Phantom is sort of discovering Swan's secret that he's a portrait of Dorian Gray himself. And he is, it, we're seeing, I'm assuming from the Phantom's point of view at like a, a monitor screen of four different things happening at once. And I was like, did De Palma just do this? Did he double what he was trying to do earlier in the movie? And it's like, yeah, he was, he was literally just giving us four different perspectives of the same fucking thing happen or different things. And that's how he sees it. Like, oh, the assassin is opening up the window and he's going to shoot down at Jessica. And I was like, God, how much of his own bullshit could he be on? Right. When he was it's like, like he can't 25 years old or some shit. It. Oh my it's, God. It's wild. It's like every scene in this movie is like De Palma. You can hear like the gears turning being like, can I really get away with that? I mean, like I really loved your, um, it, like your, comparison to John Waters, right? Like, because there are parts of this movie that are like an exercise in bad taste, right? Where it's just, it's like wild, right? Like we go, we go backstage for the auditions in Swan and there's just a giant bed with like 20 women on it, having this like orgy talking about how this is what Swan wants. Or like we, uh, when we find out that Winslow leeches is convicted for drugs, it cuts like directly to uh, a courtroom and he just turns around and goes, but I'm innocent. And then like the doors <laughs> like of the jail swing close, like we're reading a comic book. And I'm like, what the fuck and is the going on? Sing Sing appear yeah, as we're exactly. like actually at, oh my God. And, and somebody's explaining how all of the prisoners are going to get all of their teeth removed. <laughs> and then like we cut to his weird metal smile for the rest of the movie. It's, it's really like, like De Palma was like really not going to hold back anymore. You know what I mean? It was just sort of like, this is the the maximalist fantasy that it has to be to, to tell this story. And like, I think that this is like maybe more so than a lot of De Palma movies. Like we found a vehicle for him to express himself through. Right. And I think it's, it's explosive. That was sort of the bottom of my bag of tricks of like specific things I wanted to talk about. I know we'd like to put together like themes and string together ideas it was really tough for me because I just, it's just a, a force right off the bat. Um, does anybody have any else, any other like broader talking points they wanted to bring up? Um, I really like the ending to this movie. Like I said, I think it's, it's weirdly a consolation, right? Because this guy Swan that we've seen is so above it all the entire movie. It turns out that he had this hilarious, pathetic, backstory where he he's getting old and he no longer has his the beauty of his youth which again he's played by paul williams in that scene too and it's so fucking funny to see paul williams just be like well i'm starting to get old so i might as well just end it all and then um the devil himself visits uh swan which by the way one of the best reveals ever at the end of act two of this movie where it's just like oh yeah no swan is immortal uh, and so is Winslow because of the devil. <laughs> it's like even in a movie that you didn't think could surprise you, it just happens again. Right. But I really love that. Like after all of this, after this idea that like there is a man on top, a man who is above it all, who is orchestrating all of this. Right. And the fact that Swan was so above it all and so untouchable was was like that was what was categorically different about him. Right. It was this idea that like, oh, everybody else is down in the trenches, but like there are people who don't have the same desires that we have that can sort of like ride above it all. And then it turns out that's not true, right? Like Swan was, was always doomed just like everybody else was because he just wants to be 
somebody too. He just wants to be on top too. And, and like, guess what? Like everybody dies. And like, if you're in the limelight one day, you're going to be gone the next. Right. And like, there is this great sort of like almost power to the people moment at the end in, in like the darkest, most cynical way possible. But it's just like the consumer will consume. Right. It's like at the end of this movie, like Winslow's dying. Phoenix is traumatized. um, Swan is literally being torn apart by his own rabid fans. And it's just sort of like the show must go on. And like you think that it's about you until it's not. Right. And but like, you know, uh, compared to sort of like the idea that that the producers and that that capital was always going to win the day, there's something like really brilliantly anarchic and um, like conciliatory about that ending, in my opinion. I find it so fitting and also kind of sad and poignant that, you know, Paul Williams, who was, you know, a, a celebrity, a musician, a songwriter, an entertainer, uh, plays Swan. And, um, and you know, now knowing, you know, today we know that he really struggled with fame and with um, addiction to substances and alcohol. Um, so it's like a little bit dark that uh, he is this figure um, with this, uh, the character has this backstory I have not seen it yet, but there is a documentary that came out about 10 years ago called Paul Williams is Still Alive. That's basically kind of about his return to the limelight to some extent. Um, So I would definitely want to check that out. Um, But I kind of uh, one thing that, you know, we've touched on a little bit um, and kind of kind of goes along with that is just kind of like the exploitation and abuse of pretty much everyone involved um, with the entertainment industry. And in this movie, obviously, you know, the, the record and music industry. Um, it it really is a theme that runs through every character is touched by this. And, you know, some are very, uh, you know, heavy and kind of gross and sad examples. Like, you know, all the women are basically like, yeah, put put through the casting couch. And, you know, especially that the scene with all the women in bed, you know, they're kind of like, some of them still think that maybe they have a chance to try out and that they're going to be a celebrity. And, you know, they're just kind of rolling around in bed being filmed and, uh, you know, having Paul Williams jump in the middle of them. Um, and, you know, Philbin, even right at the beginning, the, the introduction to the right hand man is, you know, talking about the woman. I made her a star. I made her the money grubbing whore that she is. And I'm the mm-hmm. bad guy. You know, all the uh, he introduced her to drugs, you know, got her hooked on stuff and, you know, really sent her down a dark path and then was, uh, you know, upset when, you know, she when she took that path. Um, so, yeah, the that that kind of harassment, exploitation, abuse uh, theme. uh you know, it's it's pretty dark and jaded and cynical. Um, really runs the whole thing. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Sorry, go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say because you brought up the the opening, like the opening is a musical number, like countered against uh, Philbin sort of plotting this woman's, uh, you know, downfall, and that's a pretty good tone setter for the rest of the movie and where we end up, right? Like the sort of underneath the performance, underneath the like uh, shiny, beautiful aesthetic exterior. There's really like gross untoward shit happening and by necessity to keep the wheels of this machine rolling kind of thing anyway yeah well i mean especially if you if you think of the characters as the sort of archetypes that they are broadly right it's like this is it you could say a story about what happens when the best songwriter of our time and the best singer of our time try to make it in the music industry right? It's like Winslow's cantata is supposed to change everything. Even Swan thinks that's true, right? And Swan is like the tastemaker. Meanwhile, Phoenix is like, she's got this this fire and this passion to her that nobody's ever had. But like, look what happens when you subject these people to the industry, right? It like, it turns out that even wanting to be a part of the industry is corrupting, 
like even wanting to make it, we've gotten to the point where even wanting to make art is corrupting, which is, which is horrible. Right. Um, which is why, like, like I said, I think that the fact that the exploitation is so hardcore in this movie, where like Winslow is essentially a slave to Swan for like most of this movie, um, makes it so that I really like that the ending says like, they're going to get what's coming to them too sort of thing. You know, there's, there's, um, like I said, it's like, it's so bleak. It's so funny that this movie is so ostentatious, but so bleak, but sort of like, you know, I, it's called death records. Right. And like, everybody's dead. And then we see the, the swan, the dead crow is logo is like, that's how the movie ends. And it's just sort of like a memento mori, uh, moment. Um, and there's something sort of equalizing about that. And even in the face of, the tremendous structural uh, oppression and inequality that, that these characters are all subjected to. And in that, like, I mean, I know we talked about how even those motivations of the people who like, I'm just going to dialectically separate them in my mind, like the people, the, the um, Phoenixes, the Winslows who like believe in their, the power of their art who believe in like the integrity of it, the purity of it or whatever um, that even they, uh, I'm sorry, I've completely lost my point. Um, no, no, I mean, I, like, I think that the dialectical separation that you're thinking of is that those people are pure, or that there's nothing, there's nothing bad about that. But like, the synthesis of this movie is saying that, like, the fact that they are getting involved with the industry itself, it doesn't just touch the the after; it right. actually touches the before. Like, even the dream, even the dream of purity and artistic expression is not saved right. from. And- yeah, and and like where where I was going, I, I remember my my train of thought, uh, and and what you're saying goes well against it. Is that Swan, because he doesn't have that, because he's all been in for the business of music. He like he doesn't look for immortality through his own work, through his through like his own art, if he's able to create any. He looks for it through obviously a deal, literally deal with the devil through you know manipulating st- and stealing from others to like perpetuate that for like just torturing this man by forcing like forcing him to write music that he is probably promises is going to be performed one way and it doesn't really matter that if it is or isn't to him because it's all music and it's all going to attract people to this hot new place he's the the world's greatest music influencer uh who was ever born kind of thing i just find it like in retrospect the irony of the people who like nobody gets out alive but he tries very hard to get out alive and he's not using any sort of like any sort of artistic weight or merit he's using other people's work right. and, and, well, and, blood and that's from the why devil. We, and that's why we think he's above it, right? Mm-hmm. We think that like, oh, like it really is like in this cutthroat industry, the person with the least scruples and the least integrity and the least sort of like to lose or or the least care about um is gonna win. Swan wins because he doesn't give a shit about art and he doesn't give a shit about anybody else. And then the end of this movie is like, nah, he doesn't win either. Everybody loses. It's it's over. Um, I I particularly really love how Swan has this like almost like obsessive fixation on screwing over Winslow Leach, like mm-hmm. way above and beyond the sort of like business. Like at one point, like he only does what he does to get rid of Phoenix because he knows it's going to hurt Winslow, right? Like Winslow wanted to work with him, and then they're talking, he's talking to his right-hand man and, and his right-hand man's like, but Phoenix is perfect. And, uh, what are, uh, Swan goes, but you know how I abhor perfection in anyone but myself. <laughs> and so it's just like, he can't help it. Right. Like the, he, there's something so corrupting about him that like, he has to spite his own success too, because of how hateful it has made him. 
Um, and I really like that aspect of it too. I love that. Like he's so he's such an asshole to Winslow. He he is just really a big dick. <laughs> like he, he plants <laughs> drugs on him, gets Winslow sent to jail, all his teeth taken out, basically working, you know, in like a factory in this jail. Uh, very humorously called Sing Sing, of course. Uh, yeah, no, it is funny how just he's just kind of an asshole completely, just yeah. just to be an asshole. Um, yeah, all for I the crime it. of like trying to bring music to, which to would cost him. Product. Yes, which yeah. would cost nothing, right? Yeah. You right. Know what well, I mean? that's the thing, right? Is that like it's like jealousy. It's not really jealousy, or or Swan doesn't think of it that way. But like he's so obsessed with Winslow, he like like he has made it his life's quest to screw over this man uh, for the crime of like having a beautiful cantata, <laughs> right? Uh, I yeah, it's it's hilarious. I mean, not hilarious. It's it's, sad. it's it is it's hilarious. Sad. The so, movie is like it both. is legitimately. Yes. There were many times I just laughed out loud to myself during this movie, and it was funny because like the other half of it, Seth was listening to this movie while I was watching it. He was in the other room but could hear it, and he's like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> just like yeah. random shrieks here and there, and yelling, and like awful, terrible things happening. But I'm laughing and having a really good time. Also, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> It is funny how much of the horrifying stuff that happens to Winslow is, I hate to say it's it, very so funny. funny. His <laughs> head getting smashed by a record, pre- like comically tripping into it. I mean, like it's ve- like the single shot of like what is like jacket caught on like a little handle yeah. or something. And so he like, put- it's, it's like, uh, it's the, it's, it's like, this is very dumb, but it's like the, the most unsuccessful, like GTA, like running from the police <laughs> just com- comedically getting owned just over and over and over that's like the first like 30 minutes of this movie is just the most bad shit happening yeah to he's him. such a whipping boy also like i think that part of the reason why it's so funny and why it works so well is because it's like maybe the most self-aware author uh writing of all time right like if you if you read uh Winslow is sort of the De Palma stand-in. It's like, yeah, like De Palma has his issues with the uh, with the industry. He never received the laurels that he maybe deserved, and he was always sort of an outsider, um, always making something that was on the cutting edge. But also, he's a freak. <laughs> and like, I love the idea that that it's like, oh yeah, like the De Palma stand-in doesn't get to be like a pure artist. He gets to be somebody who yeah. gets owned all the time. But it's kind of funny that he gets owned because he's such a goddamn weirdo, right? It's like it's great. I have a request that we vote on the biggest little freak of the movie. Oh my <laughs> god, Kelly, you, can't, you can't do us. You can't do this. To, there's so many <laughs> that, little freaks. We, we, I mean, we should look. We that's should. The, is, that's uh, the year, right? It's gonna have, it's this gonna is the hard. most little freak movie we've had this it year. Like, I, I mean, yeah, this this will fill out the nominations. You gotta imagine. Yeah. Okay, so well, where where do we start? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, I the problem is that um, beef is a big freak. This is very beef is not a little freak. Beef, beef is yeah. not a little freak. He's he's no, off no. the table, right? We can all agree yeah, on that. That's true. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um so who else have we got? We've got I mean Winslow and Swan are sort of Winslow neck and, and neck, Swan, right? I would They're yeah. the two yeah. for sure. It's really two. The the yeah. right hand man character, I think, is a little freakish, but not I mean he, he's not in the, the run. The Let's problem be realistic. with him, yeah, is that he is like supposed to sort of weirdly be the everyman, right? He's supposed to be the guy on the outside who's like, look at all this weird stuff I have to make happen. Yeah. Uh, all but right. look, you just can't, you know, you're coming up against two of the greatest, you know, little freaks. You can't do, you know, if, if it's coming down to, to Swan and, and Winston or uh, Winslow, how do we just have a, a freak off with them? Or do we call them like I both go contenders Winslow. for the just, year? I'll just throw it out there. I think Winslow is absolutely the, the I mean, he's, he's, he's a, the prime what, freak what of is, this is film. It, is, it, is it because he's a simp that makes him more of a freak than Swan? I mean, Swan, like Swan is in it. Swan simp is like a definitely freaky. part of it. 
Swan's got the voyeurism angle going for That's, him, which and like I really the, like. He's been alive too long. Like he's he's had time to reconsider this path in life, and he's chosen it anyway. Like Winslow is what in his thirties. Uh, Swan yeah. is like in nineteen fifty three. He looked like he was approaching forty. Like he's definitely a little fucked up, right? Here's my thing: is that Winslow is a simp, which. It, Tbh, not really little freak behavior. You know, we can oh, argue can and we can hmm, we can equivocate sure can about like, yes, he's like he's he wants her for her purity and that's creepy, right? And voyeuristic. Listen, like the only time we see Swan derive legitimate, inarguable sexual gratification in this movie is when he gets to see Winslow watch like be cucked. That the man is getting off on cucking somebody, and that is some little freak. Be- like that is I why I vote Swan. Yeah, there, there is sort of like Swan has this erotic fixation on Winslow, and specifically screwing over Winslow. And I think that that there is something just really de- devilishly, no pun intended, um, little freakish about that. What do you think, Kelly? It's, it is a tough call. Um, I mean, we haven't also pointed out, uh, you know, Winslow's uh, outfit, you know, very, very little freak, mm-hmm. I would say, a little freak adjacent. But, I, you know, Swan, I got to hand it to him. I think he's he's the biggest little freak. He just, like, no no offense. Jason, are you Williams. are you also on Team Swan for the oh, biggest I, little I, freak? I've been on Team Swan since we brought up the thought Really? Okay. Yeah, right, like, right. I mean, like, I'll step back. I, I, I disagree, again, but I'll and, step and, back. And, and I know that we've, like built it into a whole thing and we've got our you know metrics and stuff you see paul williams and you think that guy's a little free you think you see uh winslow and you think like you think proto donald sutherland thing you think like a, maybe a, a 70s rocker type you think leonard cohen you think cat stevens you don't think eh. a little free. but paul williams you see him and you think that's a turtle that stood up like you Dude, just see I mean, a human it does not fucking, quite look for the hair and the smile so good. he's just he's, he's like edgar winter from yeah. wizard of oz munchkin land he just like he looks i and i don't mean to be pejorative about people's looks like i'm bestowing upon him a great honor the trial of my vote for little freak of the year 2022 but like oh, wow. holy holy shit yeah. he i can't think of somebody else who outpaces him that this specifically uh, I mean, the very first movie we did this year, The Possession Guy. Um, I mean, everybody's fucking, free. Yeah. Yeah. Is that Heinz? That's so it's Heinz, I think. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's tough. There's that scene where he like is dancing to like intimidate uh, the main character. Ugh. But yeah, I mean, it's there's going to be some stiff competition this year. I think there, there sure will be. I feel like we've yeah. been bringing out junk drawer thoughts since like ten minutes ago. But does anybody else have? Okay, so yes, Kelly. Kelly, it seems, has a couple of junk drawer thoughts. Thank you for getting ahead of that. Uh, I've op- <laughs> formally opened the drawer, sift around, add, and remove as you need. Sure, yeah. There's just a couple things about the movie that I think are kind of notable and interesting. Um, so, you know, you may have spotted, uh, you know, Death Records is the name of Swan's label, but it was initially Swan Song Records, um, but Led Zeppelin didn't like that because oh. that's their um, record. So, uh, some instances of that were removed, but some still remain. So if you, if you do a rewatch, you know, there's probably, I don't know, maybe five to seven times that you can see there's a black swan logo with kind of a, maybe a chrysanthemum or something. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, 
you could spot it here and there. I was, uh, which is it's so funny and so perfectly movie appropriate that it was like, oh, like we have a really funny, good metaphorical name set up for the record company, Swan Song. Can't use Swan Song? Oh, I guess we're just going to call it what it is. Like, I guess we're just going to dispense <laughs> with death. any sort of like, <laughs> like irony or or uh, metaphor. It's just going to be Death Records. Fuck it. It, it might have just been the version that I saw, but. At the when oh, yes. uh, when Swan ma- makes an appearance, yes, and, and unveils the new band and sort of explains that it's going to be a Faustian thing. Like his little podium has some logo yes. on it, but it's like very they clearly just very like yes. just Premiere Pro has been plastered over a just JPEG kind of floating. Of- <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, it's very good. It's very good. I yeah, was exactly. so that actually explained because I was watching it. And I was like, "What the it was fuck bizarre. is going yeah. on?" And then yes, that is okay. Yeah, there was. They needed to cover that up, probably for no, legal reasons. No idea. Um, yeah, my my junk drawer until we get uh, just to keep the things going. Um, so Wiseblood, the girl behind Wiseblood, must have fucking heard Jessica Harper sing before, right? Like that's or or maybe seen this movie in particular. She just has the exact same. I don't know, dude. How many that's people such on this a good point. Listening. But like that immediately, I thought this is the same tone. These are some even some of the same like lyrical content. Just. Good God. Anyway, that's that was my junk drawer. Were there any more from the folks on the call? Yeah, uh, I, I, I find oh, sorry, it, go ahead. Oh, yeah, just I find it really fascinating that, you know, this movie didn't do that well upon release. Except in Winnipeg. People in Winnipeg what? loved this movie. It played <laughs> yeah. for 18 continuous weeks at a theater in Winnipeg and then for about a year off and on. They have a fan convention dedicated to this movie uh, that they've had several times. Phantom Palooza. Uh, I, if they ever <laughs> have it again in the you future, should do it. Yeah. I, yeah, I would, it is like a dream of mine to be able to go with, you know, somebody created, you know, Phantom of the Paradise karaoke for it. Um, some of which are on YouTube, which, you know, dark secret. I'm always putting those on <laughs> my car and singing along. <laughs> Hell so yes. yeah, Winnipeg, shout out. <laughs> How incredible. Also, that somebody would that anybody the community would focus on something that specific, not broadly like De Palma stuff or like even as big as Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like yes. so a movie this niche to put, put together community day for it. Holy shit. Ah. Okay. Um, um I want to hear everybody's favorite songs. Um Kelly, you had the hell of it listed as your number one. Is that your favorite song, or did that just make sense for the uh within the auspices of the article? Yeah, it wasn't it, it wasn't like a ranked, it was more like chronologically. Sure. Um honestly, it's that's a little bit hard to answer because I think it changes all the time. But you know, today I would probably have to say old souls. Uh, because I think the lyrics are genuinely very moving. You know, it's uh maybe it's a little corny, but you know, it's about two lovers who, uh, you know, find each other again and again over time. But it really chokes me up to think about, you know, what was this last line? A kiss when I must go, no tears in time we kiss hello. Kind of about like, death may part us, but we'll see each other again. I mean, I find that like, really genuinely moving. And, and it's about course, Winslow and Swan. A dream. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. Um, Locked in eternal battle. Ex- exactly. <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite, I can't remember. It's the one that is Paul Williams' voice in the middle of the movie. Do you, what's the name of that one again? Oh, that might just be Faust, the one, uh, all the the devils that disturb me. That's the one. Yep. Yeah, that one. I really, really like that one. Mm -hmm. Come together in me now. Chills. (laughs) Uh, It's got to be Life at Last for, I know we talked about that already, but Life at Last for me is like the musical centerpiece of this movie. It is. It's too much. He also talks about being like 
horny and frustrated or whatever. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's, I forget the exact lyrics, but the energy on that is just so fucking wild and unhinged and it ends in the most bizarre way possible. I thought because the trailer include or the trailer they've been playing at the trial line includes the culmination of that scene where beef is then like fried by a lightning bolt neon sign. And I thought it can't like, that's going to be a dream sequence or something in the context of the movie, right? Like that can't actually happen. And then it actually happens. And then just a pile of fried meat sitting on the, on the fucking stage before they sweep him away and say, okay, Jessica, get out there. God, what a good fucking movie. Oh boy. I don't, uh, I don't know the names of any of the songs of the film, but I, I quite like the, uh, I kind of like an ironic appreciation for the, the juicy fruits. Oh yeah. Uh, stuff. Great. It reminds me a lot of like the, uh, Frank Zappa had a number of albums that were like, kind of satirizing like doo-wop music but kind of also serious uh and like i don't know i, I kind of hate that shit but also it is like i don't know kind of gets to you it's catchy oh, yeah. um, that little oh i'm all yes. about that it's like that that the the thing is like that music and like extended doses is awful but like just a song like that it's like yeah okay i'll i'll listen to one song like that uh randomly you know in my car somewhere you have an appreciation for the classics. Uh, and we have an appreciation for the classics here on Trilove. I, that wasn't a segue so much as it was just thank you for listening. We don't have a final segment uh, as our sports correspondent and, uh, and Nody, Nody Nobility, Cody, Cody Narvison, is out this time. And we never disrespect. We, we, we don't give a shit much about Aaron's legacy here, but like we oh, don't res- disrespect the Cody's Nody's thing. I'll always no, I I, understand. I have paid yeah. my licensing fees. Uh, the contract has been written. I, I'm allowed to pull out the pegs whenever I like. But if 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 Cody were to pass away, we would not get some guy named like uh, you know Charles to do the noties. You know, we wouldn't what would we just well, what would we call it? Ha- Charles Chodies. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Uh, what was what's another Carl? We wouldn't do. Wouldn't do. Wouldn't do. Okay, if there was like if Nick, you know, we wouldn't. I'm look. I'm I'm just spitballing here, but we yeah. would <laughs> we would put that segment in the grave, and we would say it was the best. No one can do. Yeah, it it's like Jackie Robinson. We have to retire its number. That's a, yes. That's exactly. <laughs> that is a better. Thank you. That is a much better uh, comparison to make. That's the sports content that we need in the absence of our best friend Cody. Uh, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining for this episode. I'm glad we could tap into some of your passion about this movie and your. I, I was just about to say you were the absolutely the right person to have had on because you've already started listing off the lyrics to some of the songs that I've already <laughs> forgotten having just watched it two hours ago. Oh, uh, now I was like, don't don't start doing lyrics, Kelly. <laughs> you wouldn't fucking stop, would you? I'm on uh, it. Thank Thank you for, for being here. Uh, remind folks where they can find you on the internet if you want to be found there. Sure. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at Kranzakaga underscore and uh, Letterboxd at Lucky Haas. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being able to come on and just be way too enthusiastic about Fans of the Paradise. Thanks for coming on. We hope you'll be here again. Uh, and I guess folks keep listening. We don't even have an outro quote. I guess I am completely lost every time. I, I wasn't ready for him to not be here this time. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find our podcast. It's called Try Love on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. Find the Tryline at Tryline Cinema and at Tryline.org. Me, I'm Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I like how you did that. Like the audience was asking you a question and you responded to it. Yes, it's calling oh, a response, but oh. I'm also calling in. I'm also responding. Oh, me. So. What's that? <laughs> I'm Harry Mack and you can find me on Twitter at Shitake Harry. Uh, and my name is now Beef. You can find me on Twitter at Arby, please. The karma's so thick around here, you need an aqua lung to breathe.